Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. If you're local to the San Francisco Bay Area, UP Academy, our progressive elementary school, is now enrolling for fall of 2022. And we'd love to have you watch for the Rebel Educator book launch coming in March of 2022. So welcome Rebel Educators to this episode of the Rebel Educator podcast. Hello, everyone. I am here today with Matt Barnes. Matt is co-founder and parent coach of The Education Game. He has served on two college boards, eight other public, charter, and private school boards, led an education reform nonprofit focused on parent engagement, and he's coached thousands of parents how to take leadership over their child's learning. His children have been educated in hybrid, micro, virtual, self-directed, and traditional learning models. In fact, his daughter, Olivia, was a guest during season one of The Rebel Educator, sharing her learning journey. He dreams of a world where ranking kids is a felony and parents and learners are in charge of their education. Welcome, Matt. Hey, thank you. Good to be here. So I'd love to hear about your own learning journey and what has led you to your work on The Education Game. And also why you chose that name. I'm super curious. Okay. Well, I'll start with my <laughs> my journey. My journey was um, pretty typical in the sense of going to public school. My mom, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, all educators. Great uncle started a historically black college in Tennessee. Education essentially is all throughout our, our family. Wow. And so, you know, school was what you did. And I don't ever remember being inspired in school. Until I got to college and I began to do things outside of school. These were the extracurriculars. And that's when I started to realize I loved leadership. I loved interacting with people. I started to get involved. And to this day, the most important learning that has ever happened to me has come outside of the classroom by a wide margin. And that's kind of shaped how I think about education today. Uh, and you asked about the name, right? I did. Yeah. So, all right, let me turn the tables and let me ask you a question. When you start a game, what's the number one thing you have to know before you start a game? How to win. Exactly. Got to know the objective, right? And based on the objective, that's how you play the game. And so when I started to do parent engagement work, I started to realize that most parents are playing the wrong game. They're playing the game. I call it the old education game. This is the idea that I can only win in education if I get the best grades or if I have the best SAT score, you know, if I get into the right college, then I win. That's actually not true. You win education by being a lover of learning, by being creative, by being autonomous and high agency. And so when I talk about the education game, I start by, you know, using sports metaphor to help a parent understand the different ways that education can be played and the value of looking at success differently than what we historically have done so. Does that make sense? Absolutely. In fact, my husband and I had a conversation not that long ago about the game of education. And I was saying that I pretty quickly learned in high school how to play that game and how to read my teacher and know what they wanted. That's right. What they were asking for, if I needed to do well on the test or if I needed to read the book or I had one teacher who would just quote separate things from the text. And so I would write down the page number and the quote 
and I'd just write a paper that incorporated all of the quotes that he used during the class. That's right. I never read the book, but I showed up enough to class to know what he was looking for and spit it back. And I got an A, right? So it's figuring out what does that person want from me and how do I get the grade? That's exactly right. Yep. It's a silly game. I could have learned so much more if I was there actually for learning. Bingo. And that's really the key issue, right? I tell you, I have so many sleepless nights over issues like that with the families that I work with. And so I'm sure we'll talk about some of that, but that's a great story, though. (laughs) Yeah, I was good at the game. I was a good student. Yeah. So you said that your whole family has been in education. You grew up in education. You had an uncle who started a college. So is the majority of your family still working kind of in traditional education or have they taken a more alternative approach? I know you've looked at hybrid, you've looked at micro, you've been in virtual and self-directed, you know, all these different learning environments. So to use the name of the podcast, does this make you a rebel educator in your family? There is no doubt I'm a rebel educator (laughs) to the point that um, the black sheep in my own family is my oldest son who decided he wanted to go to a traditional public high school. He became the valedictorian. And the whole time I'm like, hey, uh, you could do something else. Like you can, you can, why don't you find something you're really excited about and do that instead? And so, yeah, he's the black sheep. He became a valedictorian of his high school. And, but in, in all sincerity, everyone in my family and most families, the way we define success in education is, did you get into XYZ college? Not, are you curious? Not, do you love to learn? Not, have you learned anything, right? So yes, I am pretty unusual, although my mom, who lives just a few miles from us, is constantly talking to my kids about, are you going to go to college and what are you going to major in and what are your grades and things like that. And so it's a it's struggle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the black sheep uh, of the family, no question. <laughs> so what do parents come to you looking for? Are they looking for that? You know, How do we instill a love of learning? How do we redefine success? Why do parents seek you out? That's a great question. And there's actually three reasons. And the most common is because their child is not doing well in the traditional system. Just this morning, talked to a guy whose daughter is super anxious and struggling. And so those are parents that are like, you know, there's something wrong here. Something's not working for my kid or kids who are just, you know, it's a daily battle around homework or grades. And so Those parents will say, you know what, maybe there's something wrong that I need to explore another model, right? A lot of parents during COVID said, wow, this is what school is providing. There's got to be more. So they'll call me and say, what else is there? Like, what else can we do? And maybe the best way to describe it, Tanya, is that there's one group of people that never call me. And those are people whose kids are killing the old game of education, the kids who are straight A students who are highly compliant learners. They will do whatever the teacher or the school asks. They will not call me. That was so me. Yeah, right, (laughs) right. They won't call me because they're winning in the old game. And as a result, they don't want to change the game because that may threaten their winning. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so it's, it's, it's interesting. And it makes me sad because those kids actually, they're stuck. They can't get out of the old pattern. And there's so many institutional and cultural messages that tell them that they are doing the very right thing. But you talk to anybody who's in business, anybody who is in tech, anybody who's kind of thinking about the future of our world, they will say, those are the kids that are actually going to have a hard way because they've never learned how to problem solve, how to think for themselves. 
how to challenge authority, how to think critically. And, you know, if I could just get on a soapbox for just one more moment, Tanya, what our country needs, what our world needs right now are thinkers, not folks who hear a soundbite and say, I agree. And that's a really large problem for a society that really requires thoughtful participation in the political experiment. We also have to delete Facebook then too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, and Instagram and a bunch of others as well. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's lots of sound bites in the world. But you said something that really made me curious because I talk a lot about like, what is the resistance to the change? We all know that there needs to be change. And if anything, the last 18 months... As you said, too, parents are coming. They realized, you know, what the education system is doing and what's missing and what it could be and how little some schools are providing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But there's that resistance because there's so many families that are winning. Yeah. And so a change to that system threatens their ability to win. Yes, it does. The resistance, honestly, it's fear. You know, every parent is gripped with this fear of what if I screw something up <laughs> and my child is now, you know, at age 30 living on the streets or worse yet, living in my house? And so as parents are gripped by that fear, what it causes is a risk aversion that says, okay, what's the safest path? And the safest path is always what you went on. And if you were able to succeed, that's always the safest path until it stops being the safest path. And most people don't realize that that path is actually already stopped, likely, or is about to stop. Meaning, doing what you used to do is probably more risky now than doing something completely different. And most parents don't realize that. So the fear they have is actually an unfounded fear. The fear they should have is by doing the same thing is clearly not going to work in a world that is 180 degrees different than what it was 20 or 25 years ago, right? Yeah, the the greater risk is doing it the way it's always been done, not trying to change and be proactive for the future. Exactly, exactly. So here's this, one of the stories I love telling the story. So, you know, of course, Henry Ford in 1900, something like that, came out with the Model T. But before Henry Ford did that, there was some manufacturer of buggy whip that was like the world-renowned manufacturer of the buggy whip. And they were teaching all their kids, you've got to really know how to make these buggy whips. You've got to know how to make the buggy whips. The Model T comes out, that parent or that teacher still is going to be teaching about the buggy whip when the world has shifted 180 degrees. And that's exactly where we are in education, that you and I are talking 2,000 miles apart. And I talk to people all over the world just like this was unthinkable three years ago. And now it's normal for us to think that education won't shift and that I could learn from someone who's an expert on any topic directly from the source. That's a game changer, right? Those are the types of dynamics that parents don't realize. And so doing the old is more risky than moving into this new space. So I'm assuming the buggy whip was to make horses go faster. Well, see, you clearly weren't educated in Midwestern farm uh, theory. Yes. Buggy whips. <laughs> that's the little thing that you would actually beat the, the back of the horse to keep it moving. So there's your education for the day. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. One of the things I like to say as a parent that I get to screw my kids up in my own special way, because no matter what we do, there's going to be something when they're 30 that they're going to say, <laughs> well, right. if you would have only, <laughs> if you didn't do this, you know, that thing when I was six, that messed me up for life. That's so, exactly right. No doubt. Understanding that any decision that we make 
is both right and wrong, mm. then how mm. do we make the decisions with the greatest possible reward? Constantly yes. weighing that risk reward, right? How do we lower the risks, but heighten the reward? So to me, that answer is simple, but not easy. The way you heighten or lower the risk and heighten the reward is by turning learning over to the learner. Because think about this, you know, you're in the Bay Area, I'm in Houston. We have no idea what the world's going to look like in five or 10 years. Zero, right? As a result, anything that we're telling our child to learn today might very well be the exact wrong thing. So what we have to do is to begin to teach the child how to drive their own learning so that when they, 10 years from now, when they enter a world that's constantly shifting, they're okay. They're comfortable because they know how to drive learning. They will not look to an institution and say, help me because I'm lost in this world that's changing. They're going to go, okay, the world changed. I know how to now learn. So let me go ahead and get to it. So the way that we lower the risk threshold is by empowering giving our children agency and autonomy over their learning rather than a standardized curriculum that says this is right and everything else that you're not learning is somehow wrong. That is the riskiest environment. So how do we, you know, working with systems that have been in place for hundreds of years at mm -hmm. this point, yep. that clearly we've seen through COVID are challenging to shift, to move, to turn, to embrace new ways of doing things. So how do we shift that mindset of our educators from one of a giver of knowledge to one who teaches others to drive their learning? Okay. So I thought you were going to say, how do we shift the system? And I was going to say, you don't shift the system. You have to push the system from below. But if we're going to focus on the role of the educator, it's a little trickier because in the early years in particular, the parent and adults actually have to be more directive for a child. The story I say is, you know, you never let a two-year-old decide where they want to play because they're going to want to play in the middle of a highway. That's what two-year-olds do, right? So that means that the adult has to now play a much larger role in directing and limiting, et cetera. But as the child moves into particularly middle school, certainly late elementary school, but definitely by middle school, autonomy now has to become really the goal. And so how do teachers change? They're a part of a system. Again, I've been on so many educational boards that even the teachers that want to change, they can't because they're in a system that says, what's the standardized test scores that this classroom has? And if your kids are not performing, then you teacher might be personally responsible for that. Those teachers are also getting pushback from parents who are saying, my child didn't do well on that test. Teacher, that's your fault. So for me, all the solutions around education start at the parent and child level. Yes, teachers can help support change, but if they're not getting the support from the parent, they're stuck. So what I talk to parents about is, one is your teacher is your number one, your best friend for that year your child is there, but the relationship is one like a parent is to a pediatrician, right? So again, my background, and I don't know if this didn't come up in the bio, but my background is actually healthcare administration. I ran medical practices for a children's hospital. 50, 60 medical practices. And so every time a parent comes in, the doctor is asking permission to do things to the child because that's the relationship. The parent is in charge and the doctor is essentially working on behalf of the parent 
uh, and the child. And in education, there's an equivalent relationship there that has to get restarted, which is the parent is actually the educational lead until the child can take that leadership for themselves. That is a hard thing for some teachers to kind of get around, but most teachers I talk to also will readily admit there's almost nothing they can do if the parent is not leading their child. Their child will come to school tired. Their child will come to school unfed. Their child will come to school not having learned anything at home. Those are things that teachers can't change. So I focus on the role of the parent to help push the educational system to change from the bottom up. That was a long answer. I hope that made sense. Tell me what your thoughts are. Oh, well, you started with, you know, how do you change the system? You can't change the system. And so focusing then on the educator, because I like to think of there are a few different ways to start a revolution, right? There's the million, million different points of adversity, I guess, that would mm-hmm. come come from a million different places or trying to go top down. You top all the top and start all over. Mm-hmm. Um, so working, you know, from an educator perspective, as many educators as we can have shifting Shifting ideas, shifting mindset, changing the way they do things in the classroom, changing the way they work with parents. Yeah. Um, that's how things start to shift. Yeah. You know, unless all parents decide public school isn't working and everybody walks out, the system isn't going to change that much that quickly. No. And, and I'm not even advocating for that. What would make it really change? You know, what's, what's the... <laughs> no, there's no doubt that that would actually force the issue. What I'm arguing, though, is that parents... Here's a great example. So a teacher in one of the schools, a parent contacted me, I was working with, a teacher was trying to do, do the right thing. They were trying to de-emphasize grades, trying to emphasize learning and creativity, et cetera. The parent, but the teacher was getting pushback from their administration because this teacher was doing things that were non-standard. I said to the parent, listen, parent, this is exactly what you want to have happen in your class. So you need to go get in and fight on behalf of your teacher. That child is your responsibility. So now you give your teacher cover to do the right thing. So if parents are giving teacher cover, that actually does recreate a better structure because nobody can argue with a parent about what they want to do to protect their child. If the parent is arguing from a place of knowledge and understanding rather than a place of ignorance. So my work is trying to aim at parents to help them understand the system, to understand their role in the system and how they can work with teachers to make the system work better and to change it from the bottom up. That's kind of the summary of my demand side work. Yeah. And those are some really passionate, engaged parents. Well, every parent I've met is passionate about their child. And I work predominantly with low-income parents. Every parent I've met is passionate about their child. And every parent I would argue is engaged, but in ways that we don't appreciate. I used to do parent engagement work as a consultant with school districts. Mm -hmm. For them, an engaged parent is somebody who shows up for the parent night, person who drops the child off on time and picks them up on time, maybe a parent who, you know, does the homework, but not an engaged parent is not a parent who comes in and says, you know what, teacher, my child's really interested in frogs. I need my child to learn about frogs because she's like super excited about frogs. I don't want my child to spend one day on on frogs. I want him to spend a week or three weeks on frogs. How can we work to make that happen? Because my daughter is super interested in this deal and I want her to see how she can lead her own learning, right? That is a very different conversation, but most parents don't realize that that is the conversation that they have to lead. So the passion that a parent has for their child has to be converted into action that's aimed at an appropriate outcome rather than 
belittling the teacher or, you know, browbeating the principal, that sort of stuff. There's no place in this conversation for those types of things. And again, I coach parents on how to avoid those circumstances as well. Yeah. How do you build that partnership and also advocate for your child's interest and material that's relevant and exciting for them to learn? You know, the next step of that from a parent perspective is how do you teach your child to advocate for that themselves? <laughs> exactly. Excellent. Excellent. That's exactly right. Because my business partner, a guy named Scott Van Beck, longtime teacher, principal, superintendent, over 60 schools, I mean, 60,000 kids, very, very, very senior. When he was a principal, he would easily argue with the parent. But when a student would come in and say, listen, I love frogs. I really love frogs. Can we figure out a way that I can learn everything there is about this subject? The teacher or the principal is almost 90% of the time they're going to go, yeah, let's figure it out, right? So yes, the parent first advocates for the child, but as soon as possible is teaching that child how to advocate for themselves so that the child knows how to do that going forward. Yeah, no question. You're taking all of this work a step farther and you recently launched the Global Education Movement. And you've been having discussions with educators and thought leaders, you know, surrounding some of these topics and issues. So can you share a little bit about that group and the topics you're discussing and the direction or the hope for that organization? So it started when I, for the umpteenth time, was going to write a book about education. Again, I've done this so many times, it's laughable. But what I keep realizing is that no one person is going to move education. It's going to have to be a community operating in a similar direction. And then I stumbled on a book by a guy named Greg Sattel called Cascades. And the subtitle is How to Create a Movement that Transforms. And then that, in that book, it talks about what you need to change any system are small groups that are loosely connected, but moving in a common direction. Small groups, loosely connected, moving in a common direction. In my time on LinkedIn and working in schools and working with parents, there are so many people that are tired of the system. They so desperately want the system to change, but they're not loosely connected, working in a common direction. In fact, they're working independently. And so when I say, all right, we got to now try to figure out how we can take these small groups and now connect them in some way. We need a forum for that. And so that was a global education movement to bring these individuals and small groups to a common source so then we can then move in a common direction. And so what we're doing right now is defining what that common direction is. We're going to be launching a crowdsourced values statement where we're asking people to tell us what are the key values that should exist in our work and in education. And as we narrow that down, then those are going to be the pillars of, of our activity. And then we're going to follow Greg Sattel's book as a strategy plan for moving that to the next level. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm joining your talk on Thursday. <laughs> oh, great. Great. Well, we'll yeah. see you then. That's going to be an interesting conversation, actually. Yeah. I'm interested to, to jump in and, and be a part and hear what's going on for sure. Awesome. There's a lot of great folks in that room that would be great interviews for your podcast, too. So I can happy <laughs> to connect you. Thank you. Yep. So one of the questions that I love to ask shifting focus a little bit, is if you can remember a story from your elementary school years. Many, many stories. So in elementary, my fifth grade teacher, he's deceased, long deceased now. His name was Mr. Gilreath. 
he was at the age of 50 now looking back he must have been just a raging alcoholic because he would leave class for hours and then come back it was fairly regularly he would leave class for two two hours or, or so and then come back in and we started to see that pattern and so uh, this was in fifth grade when he would leave we started to do what kids do when they're unattended. We played crayon wars. We had crayons and we'd throw them across the room at each other. We'd turn our desks over and it would just be complete chaos for two hours. He would come back in, we would turn the desk back over, we would sit down and we would continue on with our work. Very, very strange. But in that year, there was a program called Probe Art, which was an advanced learning program that was a pullout program. And my mother, who was a teacher, learned about this program and said, my son's going to do that. The school said, no, your son's actually not ready for that. And she said, no, he's going to do that. So they pulled me out of this classroom at the lowest level of my learning experience and gave me some of the most interesting, creative conversations that I remember. It's one of the few things I remember in my entire elementary school experience were these rich Socratic conversations with a pull-out instructor. So that was a tipping point for me. My mom is, and she knew the system, so she understood how to advocate for me, right? And then going to high school, I was very good at art, won some awards, et cetera. But when I got to high school, I realized that I needed to double up in math one year in order to make it to calculus in order to be, quote unquote, a college going student. So I gave up art class my sophomore year in order to take algebra two and geometry in the same year. And at the time, it made sense because I wanted to go to college. But what I, my heart wanted was to do art. And I remember art. I remember the course. I remember some of the paintings and drawings I did. I have some of them still. That is the kind of devastating choice that we ask kids to make every single day, every single year. Put on ice things that you care about in order to pursue these things that you don't care about. Of course, life is about things that you don't care about. You have to do some, those things sometimes. But when have we ever asked a child, what do you want to learn about? What are you passionate about? Now let's go deep in that, whether it's frogs or art or whatever it might be. We don't ask that. And that is the single biggest issue, in my view, about why education doesn't work and why I'm trying to change it from the bottom up. It is not going to change top down because generally speaking, those in leadership do not trust that young people can make decisions for themselves. And I have seen that that is entirely wrong in my own kids and in many, many kids with whom I've worked. Yeah, we need to listen to students. We need to understand what they want to do and how they want to learn. Amen. No question about it. There's no question in my mind. And when you do that, it releases so much energy. It releases so much creative energy, enthusiasm, engagement, and once it starts, it makes it hard for that learner to ever be constrained again, to ever be in a situation where they're saying, okay, here's what you're going to learn about because we said so. That learner's going to say, you know what? No, I want to make choices around what I want to learn about. And that creates a enthusiastic learner for a lifetime. Yeah. And that's a life lesson, right? We've all had jobs that we hated, but we had to do them because of where we were at a certain point in time. But when you find that thing that you love to do and you're able to pursue that, there is a different energy oh my goodness. and a different level of excitement. And that, you know, that's true in everything throughout life. Absolutely. And we teach kids for the better part of 13 to 17 years that you should never expect to do things you enjoy. You're fulfilling the purpose of someone else. That's what we're essentially 
asking students to do. That doesn't work. We have ample evidence of it. And for the parents that are listening to the show, you guys know it to be true as well. The teachers that are listening to the show, I talk to so many teachers who also know this is true and they are stuck. So we have an opportunity to change this system. It's going to require a bottom-up push. It's not going to be top-down. We can't look at our legislatures to change this thing there. They're just too deeply entrenched. It's going to be parents, learners, and teachers working together. Absolutely. Thank you, Matt. How can we get in touch with you? Well, you can write a letter and in the letter put a $100 bill and then send it to my home address. And that's the best way to get a hold of me. Or or you could go to LinkedIn. I do most of my work on LinkedIn. And the address to that, I guess, will be in the show notes. Yep. So LinkedIn is where I do my writing, where I try to avoid Facebook because I have some concerns about the product. But LinkedIn is where I do my writing. I post videos and direct people to other activities that we're working on. So Wonderful. Yeah, you can also go to the educationgame.com, which is my website, and you'll find more information there as well. Great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Great talking with you. You too. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com, where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. UpAcademySF.com, where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators. Rebel Educators.